I want to invite you to take a Bible now in your hands and turn with me for yet another scripture reading, an important one, this time in the Psalms, Psalm 52. Psalm 52. One of the unique aspects of Hebrew poetry, which God employs in giving us this uh, ancient Hebrew hymn book, the book of Psalms. Uh, Hebrew poetry has as one of its uh, particular uh, Uh, ways of expressing truth, it does so in contrast. It's always telling us that this is the way of the unrighteous and they shall perish, or this is the way of the righteous and they shall flourish. This this psalm is, is no exception. God is good, we learn in this psalm, because he brings the wicked to justice. We also learn that God is good because At the same time, he causes those who trust in his unfailing love to bear fruit out of their lives, even to flourish for his glory. You follow along as I read. Why do you boast in evil, O mighty man? The loving kindness of God endures all day long. Your tongue devises destruction like a sharp razor, a worker of deceit. You love evil more than good, falsehood more than speaking what is right, Selah. You love all words that devour, O deceitful tongue. But God will break you down forever. He will snatch you up and tear you away from your tent and uproot you from the land of the living, Selah. And the righteous will see and fear and will laugh at him, saying, Behold the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and was strong in his evil desire. But as for me, I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the loving kindness of God forever and ever. I will give thanks forever because thou has done it, I will wait on thy name, for it is good in the presence of thy godly ones. The best moments of my life often come in the early morning hours of twilight when the world is still very quiet and By his grace and only by his grace, he draws me near to himself through the systematic reading of his word. I could only wish such times were more frequent and much more consistent, but like many of you, I continued to work at it. I've made it a habit to keep a supply of uh, three by five cards and a pen nearby because On many occasions, while reading the Word of God, its divine author will seem to highlight and underscore a particular verse that just speaks so directly to my heart and mind. Uh, It's as marvelous, I think, as, as hearing an audible voice. Now, in fact, when you think about it, having the voice of God in printed form is actually better than an audible voice. Because I don't have to worry about missing a word or if I don't have my hearing aid in or I don't need to rely on my 
memory, heaven forbid, to know what it is he has said. He has put it in writing, but he speaks as clearly as though we were hearing his audible voice. Now, a while back, I was reading through the book of Jeremiah, and on one particular morning, I just had to reach for the three by five card and the pen when I came to Jeremiah chapter 6 and verse 10. You don't need to turn there. I'm going to read it to you. I can tell you that when I was in that passage that particular morning, all alone with the Lord, it was at a time in my experience as a preacher. It's going back a ways now. I had some distress over what to me seemed like a resistance on the part of some to my ministry, the ministry of the Word. Then, out of the recorded experience of the weeping prophet Jeremiah came the words, and I grabbed my three-by-five card, Jeremiah 6.10. God says, To whom shall I speak and give warning that they may hear? Behold, their ears are closed, and they cannot listen. Behold, the word of the Lord has become a reproach to them. They have no delight in it. Then I realized that Jeremiah had cause for weeping, and so do many faithful preachers of God's truth in our day. But the God of all comfort and encouragement that same morning and only seven verses later had me reaching for another three by five card to record another truth. This time, verse 16 of the same chapter, Isaiah 6. Thus says the Lord. I I like the verses that always begin that way. Thus says the Lord. Stand by the ways and see and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and you shall find rest for your souls. Ain't God good? In the painful, uncertain, and turbulent times of Jeremiah's day, God held out the promise of rest for the soul. And beloved, he holds out the same promise today. The will of God for his people, regardless of circumstance, his will for you and me in difficult, uncertain, painful, and turbulent times is that we be a people who express hope, exude joy, and experience a peace that surpasses any ability even to explain it, other than the fact that it is a hope, it is a joy, it is a peace that transcends, it's up above it all. It transcends the best and the worst of life's situations. And then, just this week, another text. This time from the inspired quill of the Apostle Peter, where he writes in his first letter, chapter 3 and verse 4, these words. Now, the context is this. Peter is counseling, in this particular case, 
a wife, a believing wife, whose husband is not yet a follower of Christ. But what he has to say, of course, is general counsel as well for all of us who must live among a watching but unbelieving world. Here's what he says in 1 Peter 3, 4. Let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. The phrase that captured my attention, I guess, in a fresh way, was the fact that a child of God who exudes a quiet spirit is displaying something in their life that not only powerfully witnesses to unbelievers, but is adorned in such a way that God himself takes great delight when he sees it. A quiet spirit, Peter says, is precious in the sight of God. Of all the glorious wardrobe he has lavished upon his bride, the redeemed, This seems to be one of God's favorites in her closet. When she is arrayed with this imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, he rejoices over her preciousness to him as one redeemed, by the way, not with silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. And so I'm going to ask... That's my job. How is your spirit? How is your soul adorned this morning? Does he find a quiet spirit? That quality in his redeemed ones, which he deems most precious in his sight. When he gazes upon what Peter calls the inner person of the heart. I think Peter's saying the real you, the real me, the way down deep reality. Does he find a quietude, a restful, a composed spirit, a place of confident peace that's being freshened by, if you will, deep springs of joy and fed by an active trust in the God who time and again lifts his mighty voice above the turbulent crashing waves of life and of circumstance and he cries to his beloved, be still and know that I am God. And I tell you, to hear him speak thusly, be still and know that I am God. I tell you, not all the powers of positive thinking, all self-governing methods of emotional control, all the psychologies and the philosophies of human design, even altering the body's chemistry with numbing substitutes to get a sense of well-being, drugs for example, will ultimately fail and leave one even less prepared for the uncertainties of life. The scriptures do not cruelly tell us to just get a grip. 
It bids us instead to take hold of God himself. Better than that, more accurately, the scriptures tell us he is the one who has a grip on us and has no intentions of ever letting go. It is not merely be still. It is be still and know that I am God, saith the Lord. I'm going to tell you what I know to be true. By the authority of God's word, which is true, I tell you that the measure of peace you have right now in that hidden person of the heart, that peace is in direct proportion to what you know about God and what you truly believe is his purpose. He has a purpose in all that touches or has touched or will touch your life. I'd better say it again. The measure of peace you have right now in that hidden person of the heart is in direct proportion to what you know about God and what you truly believe is his purpose in all that touches your life. There are intentionally two parts to that proposition that I've just repeated twice. Number one, what you know about God. And number two, what you really believe about him and his purpose as it touches your life. You know, as we have been sitting here this morning, hundreds and hundreds of passenger cars, vans and trucks, probably a motorcycle or two, have passed by our sanctuary. And many of them, we hope, glanced and thought, even for a moment, about the message we placed on the sign this week, which, of course, with other things, invites the community to come to this place of worship. We employ that wonderful sign out front to put messages that give the public a general idea of what goes on here. Maybe you missed it coming in. The message today is an attempt to say in few words something about us as a church. Here's the message on the sign. Two statements. A mind for truth and a heart for God. wonder what Good Shepherd Church is all about. What's going on there even as I drive by? It's a place where people have a mind for truth and a heart for God. It says that we want to be known as a people who love the Lord our God with our minds as well as our hearts. Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. You remember some years ago, the American College Fund, I think it was, had its, as its motto, a mind is a terrible thing to waste. But for the Christian, 
there is much more at stake. You see, a wasted mind is a terrible sin. It is a demonstrated lack of love for the God who wants us to know him, to study him, to know who he is, not only for our sakes, but what's really at stake is his glory in this world. When he says, be still and know that I am God, he is calling us to a deep and abiding peace where the inner person of the heart is adorned with that precious garment, a quiet spirit. But we get there only by knowing. Be still and know that I am God. Now listen to me. Some of you especially need to listen at this time in your life. You're the storm-tossed. You're in deep waters. You're the troubled soul. What can you learn about God? And what do you truly believe about his purpose in shedding his blood for you? That is the path of this blessed state that allows you to say with great confidence and settled authority, Be still, my soul. The Lord is on thy side. Bear patiently the cross of grief or pain. Leave to thy God to order and provide. In every change, he faithful will remain. Be still, my soul, thy best, thy heavenly friend, through thorny ways leads to a joyful end. Such a statement of faith comes from cultivating a mind for truth and it yields an ever-growing heart of love for God. I want to remind you of at least two great pillars of biblical truth this morning before we go home. Upon these two great pillars of truth, you may rest your soul and command it to be still and be at peace no matter the changes and the challenge of life in this fallen world. Pillar of truth, number one. You might even want to jot it down somewhere and then find it all over the written pages of God's word. Pillar of truth, number one. The sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God. You must know this about God. He is sovereign. The second great pillar of truth. The goodness of God. The goodness of God. Not just that he does good things. But that his very nature and character as revealed to us in the scriptures, is that he is good. Now, there is a kind of holy tension between these two pillars of truth. By faith, we must endeavor to hold them in a biblical balance. That's why it might take 
some thinking. We honor the Lord. We love him with our minds when we are willing to think about the great pillar of truth that he is a sovereign God and does what he will and that he is a God of everlasting goodness. In other words, our our spiritual and emotional equilibrium, peace ruling in the heart, depends on keeping these two truths in proper balance. I want you to, uh, well, look at my body language as well as listen to my words for a moment. If you will in your mind, I I want you to get a picture of that, that somewhat now antiquated picture of a scale, you know, before the age of digital stuff. Remember the old scales you used to find in the butcher shop, for example. Now, on one side, we place the truth about God's absolute sovereignty. It is a weighty matter indeed. While on the other side of the scale, if you will, the truth about God's infinite goodness. And I say to you that in Scripture, these are of equal weight and balance and grand significance. The sovereignty of God. The goodness of God. You with me? Sometimes we are in danger of leaning a little too much in the direction of God's sovereignty until we end up with a distorted view of God. I was reading an article recently in the uh, secular journal, wasn't even a religious journal, National Review, and I came across one man's idea behind the word sovereignty. Tom Palmer wrote this, and I quote, You owe your life and everything else To the sovereign. The rights of subjects are not natural rights, but merely grants from the sovereign. There is no right even to complain about the actions of the sovereign, except insofar as the sovereign allows the subject to complain. These are, he says, the principles of unlimited, arbitrary, and absolute power. Now, Palmer may have picked up on some of the issues, I think, related to what would be a dictionary definition of sovereignty, but he is far from being biblically informed by the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. You see, Palmer's view of sovereignty would make God more of a despot The philosophy would not be biblical Christianity. It would be absolutism. All the subjects of such a sovereign God, a despot, would simply be following an arbitrary form of fatalism. Whatever's going to happen is going to happen, and there's nothing I can do about it because God is sovereign. Such ideas are unworthy of the God who reveals himself in the Bible. It is not biblical Christianity. While he indeed is sovereign over all, exercising all power and absolute authority, his rule is in keeping, are you ready? With his absolute goodness. He is sovereign 
he is good. On one side of the theological scale is his omnipotent power, and on the other, his impeccable goodness. Should we lean too far to the right of his love and goodness, minus his sovereignty, well, we end up with a God that's popular in a lot of pulpits. All he does is love. He loves, loves, loves. But alas, he is too weak. He is rendered impotent to change the hearts and minds of sinners who are hell-bent on destruction. For without sovereign power and authority, he would have no rule over death. He would call sinners to repentance, but he would not be able to raise those who are dead in trespasses and sin unless he was absolutely sovereign to do the good work of loving sinners into the kingdom. There is his sovereign grace. There is equally his sovereign justice. And both are good because he is good. They are never in conflict. Listen carefully. It is by his sovereignty and because of his goodness that you lay claim this morning, most of you I trust, to eternal life. But equally true, it is by his sovereignty and because he is good, that is perfectly righteous in his goodness, that others will have to bear the everlasting consequences of failing to acknowledge neither his sovereignty nor his goodness in their Christ-rejecting ways. He still is sovereign and it is a good thing that he brings judgment as we read in that psalm to the wicked, even while he pours out mercy on those who have trusted in his unfailing love. Be still and know that I am God. Now to that matter of a quiet spirit, peace reigning in the hidden person of the heart. It's not different than I learned to pray when we grace the table in the Christian home in which I was privileged to grow up. God is great, sovereign, omnipotent. We didn't learn all those words. We just said, God is great, God is good. Now we thank him for our food. Amen. Dig in. But in that phrase was a whole universe of biblical truth. He is sovereign. He is great. He is good. I have to close. Allow me to share a story that I hope I haven't wearied some of you who have heard it several times now in the space of a few years. But I want to repeat the story. There may be some here hearing it for the first time. It may help them and all of us to be reminded of this truth in real life situations. One of the great preachers in this generation who is known for preaching on the subject of the sovereignty of God, was pastor and theologian Dr. James Montgomery Boyce of Philadelphia. And through the years, he was used of God as a mentor to my pastoral calling and that of many, many other servants of the Lord. I know that to be a fact. And yet, at 62 years of age, 
at what seemed to me to be the peak of his usefulness and his blessing to the church worldwide, he was diagnosed with a virulent form of terminal liver cancer. In just seven weeks, he would enter the presence of Christ he had so faithfully served. Just as I entered upon my ministry in this pulpit in June of 2000, one of those Sunday mornings, my beloved teacher, Dr. Boyce, was gathering together the last strength he had to stand one more time in that great pulpit in Philadelphia. Every word from the lips of this dying servant of Christ would be memorable. But the crowning legacy of his faithful preaching will be remembered best when he said this to his grieving flock. In terms of my diagnosis, if I were to reflect on what goes on theologically here, there are two things I would stress. One is the sovereignty of God. And then he could say, that's not novel. We've talked about the sovereignty of God here forever. God is in charge. When things like this come into our lives, he said they are not accidental. It's not as if God somehow forgot what was going on and something bad had slipped by. God does everything according to his will. We've always said that. Then Dr. Boyce said, but what I've been impressed with mostly is something in addition to that. It's possible, isn't it, to conceive of God as sovereign and yet indifferent. To say, God's in charge, but he doesn't care. But it's not that. God is not only the one who is in charge, God is also good. Everything he does is good. You pick up on the two statements, Dr. Boyce, who is dying as he said it. God is sovereign. God is good. And then he dared to say this. If God does something in your life, would you change it? If you'd change it, you'd make it worse. It wouldn't be as good. So that's the way we want to accept it and move forward. And who knows what God will do. I can tell you what God did. God glorified that man on June the 15th, 2000, and Dr. Boyce received the ultimate good. Be still, my soul.